Turn with me in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 13. Verses 1 through 9, and then verses 18 through 23. 1 through 9 is the uh, parable itself, and verses 18 through 23 are the explanation of the parable, and don't worry, we're coming back to verses 10 through uh, 17 next week, Lord willing. So, this is the Word of God. It uh, contains no errors in the original languages in which it was given. We have the promise in faithful translations that it remains to us the authoritative word of God. And so it is God who speaks when it is read. Keep that in mind and listen reverently and carefully to it. Verse 1, Matthew 13. On that day, Jesus went out of the house and was sitting by the sea. And great multitudes gathered to him so that he got into a boat and sat down. And the whole multitude was standing on the beach. And he spoke many things to them in parables, saying, Behold, the sower went out to sow. And as he sowed, some seed fell beside the road. And the birds came and ate them up. And others fell among the rocky places, where they did not have much soil. And immediately they sprang up, because they had no depth of soil. But when the sun had risen, they were scorched. And because they had no root, they withered away. And others fell among the thorns, and the thorns came up and choked them out. And others fell on the good soil and yielded a crop, some a hundredfold, some 60, and some 30. He who has ears, let him hear. And skip down to verse 18. Hear then the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. This is the one on whom seed was sown beside the road. And the one on whom the seed was sown on the rocky places, this is the man who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Yet he has no firm root in himself, but is only temporary. And when affliction or persecution arises because of the word, immediately he falls away. And the one on whom seed was sown among the thorns, this is the man who hears the word. And the worry of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word, and it becomes unfruitful. And the one on whom seed was sown on the good soil, this is the man who hears the word and understands it, who, bear, who indeed bears fruit, and brings forth some a hundredfold, some sixty, and some thirty. Amen. The word of the Lord. Let's pray together. 
our Lord, we praise you and we thank you for the privilege of uh, hearing from you. Lord, we thank you that we hear from you through uh, this treasure that we have before us, which is your, um, your thoughts penned through men's hands, but ultimately your word. Uh, you, the God of the universe, who has created uh, this galaxy with hundreds of billions of stars in it and, and perhaps even billions of galaxies, that you uh, have spoken to us and continue to speak to us through lawfully ordained men uh, in whom uh, you, Lord Jesus, choose to speak. Would you please speak to us today? Would you please unpack this parable for us today through my message? And would you please speak to each and every one at our point in need that we might know which soil we are and act appropriately in response to that knowledge. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Kids, when you, um, your parents, one of your parents, or both of them perhaps, when they tell you something, they tell you to do something. Um, there are several ways you can respond to your parents, okay? They say, go pick up your room. Go empty the dishwasher. Go and uh, leave your little brother alone. Stop pulling on his hair. Whatever. When you're told by your parents to do something, there's several ways you can respond, right? You can refuse to do what they tell you, in which case you need a spanking. Hopefully you will get one. So don't do that. You don't want a spanking. Uh, you can refuse, though and unwise as that is, you could, in response to your parents' command, you could wait for a little bit before doing what they tell you to do, but eventually getting around to doing it. And that's disobedient also. To wait, to not respond promptly to your parents when they tell you to do something is wrong and a sin. So you shouldn't, it's not a good way to respond, but you could do that. Um, you could also do what they tell you right away, but grumble and complain as you do it. That's another bad option, but it is an option. But there is only one right way to respond to your parents when they tell you to do something that's not sinful. And hopefully your parents don't do that. But assuming it's not sinful, they tell you to do something. The only right way to respond is to do what your parents tell you to do with a good attitude in your heart. Cheerfully, willingly. To do it. Well, just as there's only one right way to respond to your parents when they tell you to do something, there is only one right way to respond to God's offer of forgiveness in the gospel when you hear it. And that's what this parable that Jesus shared on this occasion that we are looking at on this occasion, that is what this parable teaches. There's only one right way to respond to the word of Christ. And we'll look at that here more in just a moment. Um, this 
passage here is uh, one of a number of what are called kingdom parables that were given by our Savior that are found here in this chapter, in Matthew chapter 13. Uh, some of them are found elsewhere in uh, the Gospels as well, but this is perhaps a, uh, the largest concentration of kingdom parables, I believe it is, uh, in, the, uh, in, the, in the four Gospels. Uh, and the kingdom parables do one of either two things. They either describe the progress or the advancement of the kingdom of God, or they describe the nature of the consummation or the, com the fullness of uh, the kingdom at the time of Jesus' second coming when he returns in glory. So either one of those things is what basically all the, par all the kingdom parables fit under, one of those two, either describing the progress or the advancement of the kingdom or the fruition uh, the fullness, uh, the consummation of the kingdom when Christ returns in glory. And some of them actually deal with both, both of these subjects. Well, this parable that we're looking at here, uh, the parable of the soils, not of the sower, it's parable of the soils. This parable is, uh, deals with the former subject. It deals with the advancement, the progression of the kingdom uh, it's coming over time, uh, a progress of the kingdom which began with Jesus' first coming because Jesus is the king whose kingdom this is. And Jesus said when he arrived at the beginning of his ministry, repent uh, and believe the gospel for the kingdom of God is at hand. And the reason it was at hand because the king was at hand. He was talking to them. And thus it, had, it, uh, it was inaugurated, if you will. Uh, at the moment Jesus began his uh, public ministry, one could even argue the moment he was conceived in the womb of the Virgin Mary. At any rate, the, uh, this latter parable, or this parable deals rather uh, that we're looking at with uh, the advancement or the progress of that kingdom of King Jesus. In this parable we learn three things, at least. Three that I'm going to focus on anyway. First, we learn of the need for widespread distribution of the gospel, dissemination rather, widespread dissemination of the gospel. We learn of our need, of the need for it. Secondly, we learn of various inappropriate responses to the gospel. And then finally, uh, we learn of the only appropriate response to the gospel, finally, uh, at the end of the parable and its explanation. So first, we learn of the need for the widespread dissemination of the gospel. And that need is for dissemination of the gospel among all sorts of people, all kinds of people. And the fact that that is the case is evident from Jesus' own practice that we see here on this occasion in verses 1 through uh, the first part of verse 3. Christ uh, is by the Sea of Galilee, and a great multitude, a very, very large multitude, is apparently uh, gathering around him or crowding around him on the seashore. And because the crowd is pressing in on him, uh, 
he takes measures to put some distance between himself, a measure to put some distance between himself and the crowd. And what he does is he boards a small boat that is nearby. Uh, and after the boat has floated away from the shore a little bit, he sits down in the boat and proceeds to preach to the crowd that are looking from the shore. It is almost certainly an ethnically mixed multitude uh, similar to ones to whom he had already preached in Galilee. Galilee was a very ethnically mixed region. A lot of Gentiles in Galilee, <coughs> as well as Jews, but there were lots of Gentiles there as well. And so this is probably, almost certainly, an ethnically mixed uh, gathering here. And the reason I bring that up is to make the point that Jesus didn't say, all you Gentiles leave. This is just for the Jews. His message was for both Jews and Gentiles. He did not limit his proclamation of the character and arrival of the kingdom of God to the Jewish people, the Old Testament covenant people, but rather he wished it to be proclaimed to all people. Indeed, in the Old Testament, it was to be proclaimed to all people too uh, by the uh, Israelites. Uh, they didn't do a very good job of it but it was to be done. At any rate, Jesus is proclaiming to this mixed crowd, and it was also a mixed crowd in the sense that it was made up both of those who would eventually respond with saving faith to uh, Jesus' words, to the message that he was proclaiming of the coming of the kingdom in himself as the king, but the crowd was also undoubtedly made up of people who wouldn't respond the right way to Jesus' proclamation of the kingdom. And we, we know this because of what we read in verse um, 11, which is uh, in the, the section that precedes this. Wait a minute. No, it's not the section that precedes this. It's in between the, the parable and its explanation. In verse 11, he says, And he answered and said to them, this is after the disciples asked him, Why do you speak to them in parables? And we'll talk more about this next week, Lord willing. But he answered and said to them, to you, meaning to you disciples, <coughs> it has been granted to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been granted. There are people there that weren't supposed to understand what Jesus was saying. And he'll explain why, and does explain why, and we'll look at that next week, uh, why that is that Jesus uh, deliberately hid truth from some people who were present on that occasion for that parable. But the point is there is some who would respond and some who would not respond positively, positively to the gospel. Well, the fact that the gospel is to be widely disseminated is evident not just from Jesus' own practice on this occasion, but also from the parable itself that he taught. There's... Um, Several symbols that are found in this parable, as is regularly the case with parables. In this parable, the sower, the one who is doing the sowing, is actually Christ himself, principally. Although, secondarily, uh, others like him who proclaim the gospel. But principally, it's a reference to Christ himself. He is the sower. He is sowing right then on that occasion. Uh, the seed that is sown represents the word of Christ or the message of Christ regarding the inauguration of the kingdom of God as a result of his own arrival on the world stage as the king of kings. 
and the Messiah. And then the soils in this parable represent different categories of hearers of that word of Christ. And that's the soils is really the focus in, 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 a lot of, in many ways. That's the focus of this, uh, this passage. So let's talk about uh, the soils and, um, and their reception of the seed. First, let me back up. The farmer in this parable that Christ tells, he is taking, uh, the picture that he's painting is the farmer is taking his supply of grain to his field in a bag that was held around his neck or his shoulder, uh, or both, I believe. And the, he is systematically walking through his field, scattering his grain like this. He goes through, he's got a plot of land that belongs to him, and he is scattering that seed uh, from his bag at the beginning of the growing season. And as he's casting his seed near the edge of his field, some of the kernels from that seed land in the path, or it's called a road here, but it's probably just a, a walking path, principally, near, that marks the edge of his field. And so he casts some near the edge, and some of it gets over on that, that uh, hardened ground there that is the path or that is the road uh, on the boundary of his, his field. And the soil there on which the seed lands is beaten down because of the traffic. It's hard. It's, uh, it's impenetrable by the seed. And therefore, it is ill-suited for the germination of those seeds that land there. So the seeds that do land there don't even sprout at all, let alone grow to maturity. They don't sprout at all. They're carried away by birds and eaten. Well, as he's casting his seed in the field, some of it falls on shallow soil. Soil that, uh, where there is rock underneath the surface of the soil and also perhaps rock jutting up from that underlying bedrock um, that doesn't have much soil uh, there. And he tosses it there. It gets tossed there as he's casting um, broadly. And the soil is shallow. And so this soil, there is some soil there, so it begins to germinate. But because of the shallowness of the soil due to the rock underlying it and, and mixed in with it, that soil, or that seed does not grow to maturity. It eventually dies from the effects of the scorching sun. Well, some more seed that he casts is cast on soil that is contaminated with the seeds and roots of thorny weeds. Again, soil that would not allow the wheat, while it might allow the wheat to, uh, to begin to grow or the grain to begin to grow, it might not have been wheat, but whatever it was to begin to grow, it doesn't grow to maturity because it's choked out by the thorns that it's cast in the midst of. The point that Jesus is making by these first three types of soil uh, is that the farmer casts his seed not just on one type of soil, but on several types of soil. 
including soil that will never produce a crop. And just as the farmer does that, so to Jesus, the sower of spiritual seed in his preaching, Jesus was proclaiming his word of salvation, his kingship, and his uh, ability to bring salvation to those who would trust in him. He proclaims that message to all sorts of men and women and children, including folks who would never ultimately receive that seed and bear fruit to maturity. So again, our Savior, by the parable, as well as by his own behavior and by the parable itself, shows that there is a requirement for broadcasting of spiritual seed. And since this parable about the, is about the advancement, as I said earlier, of the kingdom of God, uh, a kingdom which had already come with the arrival of the messianic king, Jesus, we, who are his subjects, believers, are being implicitly called upon here in this parable to follow his example and to proclaim the gospel to all sorts of people around us whom God gives us opportunity to minister to. By the way, I hope all of you know this, evangelism is not merely for myself as the minister, and you all get a pass on that. It's not just for the elders, and the deacons, we don't have deacons at the moment, uh, but it's not just for the leadership of the church and that somehow other folks get a pass. It's not, by the way, kids, just for adults. You can't say, well, I'm a kid, I don't need to do that. That's for grown-ups. Not true. You are to be a witness as well as your mom and your dad, as well as your minister and uh, other Christians. We are not just to minister to those people who look just like us either. We're not called just to minister to white Anglo-Saxon Protestants. We're not called just to minister to suburbanites. If you can call Lufkin a suburb, it's, that's not quite right, but you get the point. Folks that live in town. We are not to just minister the gospel to those we're pretty sure are going to respond the right way. No. God would have us, Jesus would have us um, follow his example of casting the gospel broadly to all sorts of people and not to discriminate about who we talk to, but to look for opportunities and talk to whomever the Lord gives us an opportunity to talk to. And we need to look for those opportunities. You need to look for those opportunities. Paul tells us in Acts 17, the Holy Spirit through him, God is now declaring to men that all everywhere, all everywhere should repent. That is a universal everybody, all sorts of people everywhere are to repent. And you and I are the instruments that he himself, uh, the Lord Jesus, has chosen to do this declaring that Paul speaks of in, in Acts 17. You are to pick up your bag of gospel seed and throw it widely. Are you doing that? Have you been looking for opportunities to share your faith? Are you taking opportunities that you see 
to share your faith. Now, if you're like me, and you are, you have not always done that. You have failed to be the kind of witness consistently that you should be. I have failed. And God mercifully forgives us for that repeatedly and always will if we are Christians. That is an excuse to not do it, though, to not purpose to be a godly and a consistent witness. We need to understand where we have made mistakes and we need to not repeat those mistakes. Maybe there's somebody in your place of uh, work. Maybe there's somebody that you interact with at the grocery store or who's a neighbor that you just have never made any effort to talk to about the Savior. He's on his way to hell if he doesn't have Christ. That isn't to put a guilt trip on you, but it is to point out the seriousness of the matter. Souls are dying and going to hell every day. And yes, Jesus could speak to them from heaven, from the clouds, but he has chosen to communicate that truth through his people, us. It's our job, one of them. It's one of the ways we serve and show our love for Jesus is by sharing him with others. And we need to ask God for forgiveness for not having done that rightly in times past and for the grace to start sharing the right way and consistently now with those whom he puts in our past. And we also need to pray the Lord's Prayer element, thy kingdom come. Lord, cause your kingdom to come. Cause it to come through me. Use me to help bring that kingdom in uh, by giving me opportunities to lead lost souls to Christ. Okay, so this passage teaches us, we learn of uh, the need for the widespread dissemination of the gospel. This passage also teaches us about the various inappropriate responses to the gospel message. Um, there had been a general failure on the part of the multitudes up to this point in Jesus' ministry to appreciate what the coming of Jesus um, as the son of David meant. People were not seeing and understanding, even if they understood that this is the Messiah, still had a wrong-headed notion of what it meant that Jesus was the Messiah, if they even believed that. And many in the multitude didn't even believe that. So they didn't understand, many, what was going on or what the significance of Jesus' presence among them and the miracles that he was performing meant. Also, there had been uh, and there was, as a, a backdrop to this, uh, this parable, there had been a plan on the part of the religious leaders that had already been hatched to destroy him. We read of it in 12, uh, verse 14, chapter 12, verse 14. And there had been accusations that had preceded the telling of this parable that Jesus had formed an alliance with Beelzebul, with Satan. Also back in chapter 12, we read of that. And so this is the backdrop, these things that I've just spoken of are the backdrop um, to Jesus' discussion of these various soils upon whom the, the seed of the gospel is cast, various hearers. And this parable makes it abundantly clear that many 
who will hear Jesus and who will hear Jesus' servants in the form of his people down through the ages, many who will hear the gospel will respond to it with something less than saving faith. The first category of hearers that uh, Jesus uh, speaks of, it's, uh, the parable is verse 4 where this first category is mentioned and the interpretation is found in verse 19. I won't bother to read it right now uh, for the sake of time. But in the first category, uh, the first category of, category of hearers is represented by the soil alongside uh, the path and in the path. The ground there in the path uh, is so hardened, as I said, that all uh, by the foot traffic, that seed can't get down into the soil. It remains on the top of the hardened ground and it is exposed to the elements and finally the birds come and uh, take it away. And this is a reference, of course, to hearers who aren't the least bit inclined to respond to the gospel call. It goes in one ear and out the other. Yes, there is a sense in which the word does reach their heart. If you, re if you listen to what I read there, uh, what Jesus said there, there's a sense in which the word that is spoken does actually, in some sense, reach the heart. But before it can have any effect on the heart uh, at all, those individuals who are described by that first soil allow the evil one, and it is allowing the evil one to come and snatch that word of Jesus away take it away from them. Satan is described as the one taking away the word. That's true. But if you look at verse 9, it's clear from what he, Jesus says in verse 9 that it's actually the hearer himself, uh, this first hearer himself, uh, who is ultimately responsible for his rejection of the gospel in the word. Yes, he has help from Satan, uh, by treating the gospel himself, by treating the gospel lightly, he's essentially cooperating with Satan, whose lies and enticements he himself believes and uses in, as an excuse to sear his own conscience and reject the message. These, this is a description of the most hard-hearted, God-hating, reprobate folks. And I hope there's no one here like this today who fits into that category. There's a second category that Jesus, of hearers that Jesus speaks of, and that is those represented by the rocky soil. Verses 5 and 6 and the interpretation verses 20 and 21. Like shallow, rocky soil, which quickly produces initial signs of life, these hearers immediately produce apparent signs of spiritual life upon hearing the message. They rejoice in the message of salvation, at least initially, and respond with seemingly genuine faith. I believe that. Outside, from the outside observer, it looks like he's become a Christian. But, like the rocky soil on which seed falls... Such signs of life are short-lived. At first, at the first sign of affliction or persecution that arises on account of their professed allegiance to Christ, they quickly turn their backs on him. Ah, I, don't, I, don't, I don't need that Christianity stuff. It's all right. 
It was just a phase or a fad. Your commitment to him withers down to nothing because their so-called faith lacks any depth and therefore isn't real faith. This kind of abandonment of one's professed faith in Christ proves that their faith was never genuine but was only a superficial counterfeit. And we know this, that it was a counterfeit, it wasn't genuine, because genuine faith in Jesus that is saving faith perseveres under trial and is willing to suffer out of love for Christ without abandoning one's commitment to him. I, I want to read to you what we read in John chapter 10. He says there in John chapter 10, let me back up. He's speaking to the, uh, his religious opponents, the, the Jewish leaders who uh, hated him and wanted him dead. And they, they had said to him, if you are the Christ, tell us plainly, as if he hadn't already, which he had. And Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name, these bear witness of me, meaning that I am actually the Christ, the Messiah. But you do not believe because you are not of my sheep. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And I give eternal life to them, and they shall never perish, and no one shall snatch them out of my hand. My Father who, is greater, who, is, who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. True faith doesn't abandon Christ when the going gets tough, when one gets persecuted for being a Christian or made fun of or loses a job uh, because of one's faith. True faith may waver. Peter's certainly did. But it's never ultimately extinguished by persecution or trial because of what I just read. Because it's not we who hang on to Jesus, but it's him who hangs on to us. And he doesn't let go of his own. Superficial responses like this one of the second category of hearers is not at all uncommon. I promise you, I know from experience, it's not at all uncommon. And it's something that you and I as witnesses of Christ, for Christ need to be prepared for. It's very discouraging, by the way. And maybe for those, maybe a number of you here know what, what I'm talking about, where you've shared the gospel and somebody appears all enthusiastic. But then time shows that there was nothing there. Nothing genuine there in the way of faith and love for Christ. We need to brace ourselves for that and brace ourselves for disappointment. Um, it's part of the, being a disciple. It's part of being a witness for Christ. We're going to encounter that. There's the third, and, and let me say this. I, oh, no, never mind. I'll go on to the third point. There's a third category of here who's represented by the thorn-infested soil. Verse 7 and verse 22. Just as the hardier thorn 
seeds and roots buried in the soil grow up alongside the more tender sown grain and eventually choke it off, that grain, and kill it, so too worldly interests. Fascination with the world thwarts the production of any lasting spiritual fruit in the hearer that might otherwise have resulted if he had been a true believer in Christ. These are, the, these are individuals who, are, who attempt to keep one foot in the world and one foot, so to speak, in the kingdom. Such a one tells himself and others, I belong to Christ. My heart belongs to Christ. But in fact, really down deep, their heart belongs to the world and its ruler. And the fact um, that this is in fact the case, they love the world, is evident from a preoccupation with and anxiety over worldly affairs, secular matters, and a belief that one's happiness is somehow dependent upon having enough stuff and the right stuff and other such worldly preoccupations. Demas, Paul speaks of a gentleman uh, named Demas who was like this. 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 10. He was one of these folks. Looked like he was a disciple for a while, but then things happened and he got, his eye, took his eye off of Christ. His eye was never really on Christ and he left the fold. These are folks who lead a double life. They're religious on Sunday and then they're worldly during the week. Is that you? Because we're told that folks who do this, who lead this double life of pretension of having, of loving Christ and also loving the world, that eventually their love for the world wins out and becomes evident. It overtakes such a one to the extent that his professed faith atrophies into nothingness eventually. None of these three above-mentioned hearers that I've spoken of that Christ speaks of respond to the gospel with saving faith, even though two out of three of these uh, three categories of believers, they do respond with an initial positive decision of sorts. But in the end, none of them have saving faith. If you are here today and you have never wholeheartedly trusted in Jesus Christ, who is described in the Bible, who is 100% God and 100% man and the only mediator between God and sinners, if you haven't trusted in him alone to save you from the hell that all of us deserve, and also not just to save you, but also to be the king of your life, the Lord of your life. Jesus is Savior and Lord, or as we Presbyterians, Reformed folks tend to say, he is prophet, priest, and king. And you receive him as such, or you haven't received him. If you have not trusted in him alone to be, to, 
to cover your sins from the sight of a blindingly holy God and blindingly just God, you can do one of three things. One of four things, actually. You can respond in one of the three ways that we've just discussed. Be one of the three hearers we've just looked at, in which case you will be doomed to experience God's eternal judicial wrath in hell forevermore. I trust you don't want that. Hope you don't want that. Or you can respond the fourth way. And that's the third point of the sermon. Briefly, we see in this parable the only appropriate response to the gospel of Christ. And that is the response represented of the last category of hearers that's represented by the good soil, described in verse 8 and verse 23. Just as good soil provides fertile, receptive ground in which seed can grow, so too the heart of this fourth category of hearer provides fertile spiritual soil in which the word of Christ can grow and thrive after it has been sown. And by the way, that fertile soil is provided by God himself, not by you and me. The individual who hears the word, the gospel, the word of Christ as king uh, of his people and as savior of his people, the individual who hears that word and understands it and acts on it. By acting on it, I mean who is like the wise man who built his house upon the rock. He acts on it. He doesn't just intellectually assent to it and say, yeah, I believe that. Uh, that all makes sense. He personally clings to Jesus as his only hope of being of not going to hell when you take your last breath here in this world. The person who does that is the one who has acted, who is the one described by this fourth category of hearer, the good soil. And it's the soil that produces fruit, that bears fruit. Notice that's not mentioned in any of the other three soils. It's only the fourth soil where fruit is produced. That's the evidence that the person received Christ savingly, is the fruit. The second and third category of hearers produced something that resembled fruit, but it wasn't genuine fruit of the Spirit of God at work in their life but it was a counterfeit fruit that resembled true fruit, but wasn't the real God-given kind. True spiritual fruit given by the Holy Spirit lasts. In other words, the person who bears this fruit is one who perseveres in doing good, perseveres in, in trying to obey God's word as and his will is set forth in the scriptures, um, and who grieves over sin in his life and says, Lord, I hate what I've done. I'm sorry. Please help me not to do this again. Which itself is good fruit. You see, this lasting spirit-produced spirit fruit is the sign of true conversion. 
Some people think that more than one of the soils described by Jesus here were saved. Not true. It's only the last soil, the last hearer that's represented by that last soil who's saved. And that's the one who bore fruit after having understood and believed the gospel message. This fruit that Christians produce, that you should be producing if you're a genuine Christian, this fruit is not the principal source of our assurance of salvation. Don't look to your fruit to feel comfortable about your right standing before God because your fruit is imperfect, so is mine. And staring at your own fruit is not going to encourage you that you're right with God. But uh, spiritual fruit is the external, visible evidence um, that we have truly been converted by Christ and have his Holy Spirit dwelling within us. So if you profess Jesus as your Savior today, is there spiritual fruit in your life is there spiritual fruit that others around you, your parents, your children, um, your colleagues, your neighbor, would say, yeah, she acts like a Christian. Even if they don't like Christians. But would say, yeah, I see, I see that person's acting like a Christian. You see, we have a tendency, if we're not careful, to, um, to um, mis, how do I say, misunderstand or to think our fruit is, to be more positive about our own fruit than we should be, about our own good deeds, uh, and to not see what's actually the truth. We need to ask ourselves, what do other people think of us? That's a better measure of whether or not your fruit is Christian fruit or not. And if it's not, if you have um, maybe find yourself a little frightened by this sermon and think, uh, I'm not sure I'm a Christian. All you need to do is flee to Jesus. Not just as your Savior, but as your Lord. We all serve a master. It's just a matter of which master we serve. And if we are going to be a Christian, we have to serve Jesus, not ourselves. Jesus alone, through his spirit alone, can give you the grace to bow the knee to him. But if you want him right now, and you understand that he's your only hope of being forgiven and going to heaven, then He's at work in your life and has already given you that ability to bow the knee to him. So do so today. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this passage that reminds us of, uh, of the dangers of pretension, of pseudo-religion, of shallow um, 
empty professions of faith in Jesus. Lord, were it not for your gracious lifting of the veil from our eyes, we would, uh, we would be one of these people, kidding ourselves and believing our own lies that all is well when all is not well. Thank you, Lord, that you have caused us to, those of us who are genuine Christians, to flee to Christ and understand that he alone can save us. And Lord, if there is a one here today, or more than one, who has not savingly fled to Jesus alone, would you please have mercy, as only you can do. Only you can lift the veil. Would you please save anyone here who is not yours already? We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Receive now God's blessing. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God the Father, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be and abide with you all, both now and forevermore. Amen.